The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight, while it's very tempting uh, to look at the news and think the whole world has turned into a supermarket tabloid, there are very real conflicts going on right now in the world. And I think one of the ones that has the potential to escalate in a particularly dangerous manner is the uh, situation in Eastern Europe, this Russia-Ukraine conflict, which the United States is very much involved in. One of the best things that I've written, read on this was uh, a, an article I just posted to my Facebook page. You could read it as well. It's from the National Interest a couple of weeks ago. The Democratist War on Diplomacy. And to me, this column asks and answers so many of the right questions. Namely, why is the United States not pursuing and encouraging diplomacy? And why are there authoritarian regimes around the world that have historically enjoyed a very poor reputation? Why are they now becoming the international diplomats? Wait a minute. This used to be the United States role. Uh, The author of that, I just linked to it. You can read it if you want. Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. The author of that piece is Dr. Christopher Mott, a research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy and the author of the book, The Formless Empire, A Short History of Diplomacy and Warfare in Central Asia. He's kind enough to join us right now. Uh, Dr. Mott, thank you for joining me on the radio. Oh, it's my pleasure. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Uh, So for people who aren't sort of up to date with where we are with the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation right now, what's your analysis of how things stand at this point? Is Russia gaining the upper hand? Is Ukraine getting the upper hand? Are we at some sort of a, a global stalemate here? What's going on? Uh, I would say global stalemate is probably the closest of those options. Uh, I think right now we're waiting uh, with a level of uncertainty to see what will happen with this uh, supposedly uh, coming uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I think that's going to kind of determine how people view who is going what way. Uh, Obviously, the vast majority of the war takes place in Ukraine and Russia has a numerical and material advantage. Uh, But at the same time, they have a lot of morale problems. They have a lot of logistical problems. And the Ukrainians are clearly much more motivated because it's on their homeland. Uh, And so there's these kind of wild claims that go back and forth. At first, it was uh, we were told by the intelligence agencies that Russia 
would just roll over Ukraine. It would be a most one-sided thing ever. And then Ukraine actually had a much better <laughs> time than the Russians did in the first few months of the war. Uh, and, and then it became a whole, oh, well, uh, the forces of Ukraine will march on Moscow. And so you have this kind of like rapidly oscillating, uh, not very sober analysis. But in the end, what most of it is and what it seems to be right now is a kind of grinding stalemate. Now, um, from the United States' perspective and from the world's perspective more broadly, what do you think the the best case scenario is in terms of how this conflict comes to an end? And what's the worst case scenario? Oh, boy. Uh, well, the worst case scenario is easier to answer because that would be uh, just continuous escalation to the point where uh, the U.S. and the NATO alliance are basically nuclear saber-rattling, and so is Russia. Uh, uh, Russia can barely handle Ukraine in a deadlock, so its uh, ability to conventionally handle uh, the rest of uh, NATO is obviously extremely doubtful. But what one thing they do have is the world's largest nuclear arsenal. So the more desperate they become, the more likely they are to use that. Now, that's mostly going to be a bluff, as most uh, nuclear weapons deployments kind of are. <laughs> they're, they're meant to bluff. Everyone loses if they're unleashed. But the side with more to lose might be the side more likely to uh, really uh, play a game of chicken with that. Uh, so the worst case scenario is just that things escalate even further with countries that are technically, of course, we all know that this is not necessarily the case, but technically not belligerents, right? Countries that are supporting Ukraine without being officially allied to it. Um, as for the best case scenario, that's much harder to pin down because there's – and it depends on who you ask because uh, someone like me – who looks at the, the the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine and says, "Oh man, you know, like this is this is horrific." At the same time, I don't think that U.S. interest is uh, served by being so heavily involved in this conflict. But on the personal level, I think, "Oh, this is really horrific." I really do want the Russians to be, <laughs> you know, to to really suffer for for doing this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's this kind of uh, bellicosity in uh, Washington, D.C., which says that the best case scenario is to roll them out of everything, including the parts of Ukraine that are probably majority pro-Russian. In the case of Crimea, I think almost certainly. And that even if they were to get that best case scenario, what happens when Russia rearms, reequips, comes back in 10, 15 years? But also, more importantly, like it's it's leaving Ukraine with this highly unstable um region that doesn't want to be there. And that creates a whole new set of problems, too. So, I mean, my personal take on what the best case scenario is, is some kind of negotiated peace that avoids a Korea-style DMZ situation, but at the same time understands that certain parts of Ukraine uh, need to have some kind of either a referendum or whatever to decide where they want to go, while at the same time Russia definitely needs to leave the rest of the country. You, um, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Christopher Mott. I just uh, posted his article on my Facebook page in which he delves into some of these articles. You can check it out, facebook.com slash Moranofan. You alluded to diplomacy, which is something that I've been a very big proponent of. And that's what, to me, the most frustrating aspect of this whole war has been, which is that we know how it's going to end. We know Crimea is never going to be part of Ukraine again. We know it's probably unlikely that the ethnic Russian areas of 
of uh, eastern Ukraine are probably not going to be part of Ukraine again. We know that there's a better than even chance that Ukraine is not going to be a part of NATO. So my view is, from the beginning really, let's facilitate a diplomatic solution to get to the point where we know this is going to end and let's save as much lives and as much treasure and as much property in the meantime. And I will tell you by callers, by emailers, by listeners, by former listeners, by colleagues, anybody that I've put on, guests, myself, callers that have said that, they have uh, been constantly referred to as uh, Chamberlain-like and appeasers. Now, I want you to explain, because you are, you're much more educated than I am and much more well-versed on these kind of things than I am, why is that argument, the appeasement argument, fallacious? Why are people like me, and it sounds like you, who may favor a diplomatic end to this conflict, why are we not Neville Chamberlain-style appeasers? Right. Well, uh, if you, the, the whole use of the phrase appeasement is one of the most weaponized and ridiculous uh, tactics in kind of uh, post-war, uh, particularly American, but not necessarily always American uh, discourse, particularly when it comes to diplomacy. Uh, appeasement, it, it, first of all, the comparison to Neville Chamberlain is a bit of a weird one because Britain in 1938, when appeasement, you know, with Czechoslovakia and the Sudetenland and all that stuff with Hitler happened, Britain was not yet up to war industrial level. It needed to buy time. And what Neville Chamberlain did is he actually bought Britain time to be a bit more prepared for a coming war. So it's not like quite exactly like this 100 percent cowardice thing that it's presented. I actually wrote an entire piece um, about uh, over a year and a half ago for the American conservative on this hyperfixation with World War II and and the the early stages of World War II in particular in diplomatic discourse, because it's always said that to engage in diplomacy is appeasement. And, And World War II is always the example. But what we're seeing right now in the world is a kind of breakdown of the post war order, which means that World War II is probably one of the least relevant historical examples you could ever find. Uh, we we are in a world where a lot of multiple people have nuclear weapons, first of all, and can exchange them internationally, regardless of their conventional strength. Uh, we we therefore diplomacy is a necessity uh, for the human race, but also it's this this whole idea that everything comes to a World War II style clash of good versus evil, and that that kind of brushes over the fact that most of these conflicts that we're looking at are far more complicated than that, and uh, it, it's also it ties in kind of like with my more recent democratism piece. It ties in with this maximalist idea that every single conflict that we choose to get involved in is equally important. If you make a concession here, you may as well be selling out your own country. If, if you, if you uh, make any kind of uh, – if you treat a state with a different governing system as an equal, which is actually something that you have to do to engage in diplomacy most time, uh, it's viewed as kind of a surrender of your values. This is a maximalist worldview that says that our way of viewing the world – 
needs to be universally applied to every single region in the world at all times. <laughs> but of course, this is not what happens. If, if we could have universal political systems and values, we wouldn't really need diplomacy, would we? We would be able to just kind of have a constitutional conference and have everyone come together. But the reality is we have different people who have different values and come from different geographic places with different resource bases, and they have different security concerns. And so every time you're not just blatantly at war with someone, you're inevitably going to have negotiations and you're going to have compromises back and forth. And the rhetoric of appeasement and invoking Neville Chamberlain and this hyperfixation on World War II, which is one event out of many, many, many events in human history, uh, really distorts the narrative of what diplomacy actually is and what it's meant to achieve. I think if people really want to look at uh, Central and Eastern Europe historical analogies, uh, they'd be much better served looking at 1914 and the kind of cascading failure of a hyper-militarized alliance network that caused World War I from uh, simple events between Serbia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and, of course, you would never have had World War II in the first place if you had not had World War I. So this, like, very, very hyper-fixated uh, view is actually very dangerous because it forces everything to a binary. You either want to appease Putin or you are a hero for freedom who wants to fight him. Well, I think there's a lot of other positions out there from those. Oh, things. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, talking with Dr. Christopher Mott. So tell me about this column, The Democratist War on Diplomacy. I've read it, and I encourage everybody to read it. But when you say the democratist war on diplomacy, what is democratism? Who are the democratists, and why are they at war with diplomacy as an idea and a strategy? Ah, yes. So I'm pulling the phrase, I can't take full credit for this, because I am pulling the phrase from a book by uh, Dr. Emily Findlay, um, who kind of, although the term predates her, she really gives it a specific definition. And it's someone who believes that the only way to really govern a society is through a liberal democratic system, and that's the only legitimate way. Uh, this, of course, doesn't just apply to one's own society, but to the entire world. Now, this obviously is an ideology of expansionism, which may not always be popular at all times in the society which is upheld. So the democratist tends to, while strongly believing that democracy is the only way forward, uh, tends to also have this very strong anti-populist side that says, but we can't let uh, the common people have any say in policy matters, particularly foreign policy matters, because then they might say, ah, we don't want to, you know, export this worldview to other countries. We, we might want to save money and, and, and build bridges at home or something. And so the Democrats said, no, like we have to we have to keep the uh, the, the, the screws on so that the elites, uh, which is a kind of, you know, ideological elite of kind of uh, uh, international liberalism, which is not the same thing as how the term liberalism is used in American domestic politics, but uh, as this kind of enlightenment liberalism um, is is just kept solidly in power and then exported abroad consistently. And that's the only real uh, – that's the purpose of the state, and that is why it is supposed to uh, go forth and conquer, if you will. But the problem, of course, with that is, is when you come across powerful countries that are not liberal democracies – and they don't want anything to do with this, and you have to negotiate with them, um, it becomes much harder to engage in diplomacy because you have a chorus of people, possibly in the foreign policy elite like we have now, 
who say, oh, no, this is illegitimate. How dare you negotiate with Russia? How do you re- dare you negotiate with China? You're selling out democracy and therefore selling out your own citizens. And we, the democratists, are determining who those citizens are and what are their legitimate views. So it's a very um, – it's an ideological construct that is meant to kind of give fuel to the fire of the morale of people who, who feel themselves very on the right side of history, if you will – and uh, want to castigate a kind of practical getting down to brass tacks power politics view of things, which is traditionally how many countries, including liberal democracies, function when they're not being too ideological. One of the uh, aspects of the Bush doctrine, and it was meant different things at different times, was that democracies don't attack one another. And that, that was part of the rationale for the United States having a regime change policy in countries like Iraq and turn these authoritarian um, regimes into democracies. Did the ideology, the ideology of democratism, did that begin with the, in the grand scale anyway, with the Bush administration, or did it take a hold long before that? What were the sort of origins of democratism as an ideology? Um, it, it actually goes back a bit further than that. Uh, uh, specifically, the uh, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the political thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau is very much for kind of exporting this kind of enlightenment uh, worldview. Uh, in the United States, which was much weaker than France back then, it didn't really take off, although Thomas Jefferson definitely had inklings of this ideology. Uh, but what you really see uh, is is Woodrow Wilson being the first kind of president who very explicitly uh, wants to, quote unquote, make the world safe for democracy. Now, this fully militarized kind of uh, millennialist Uh, take over the whole world type of thing, that is a George W. Bush thing. Like the extent to which it became a central part of policy is very much a part of the Bush administration. But the Bush administration does, in fact, mirror the experience of Woodrow Wilson in many ways, because kind of following the democratist paradigm, you have a president who mobilizes for war and says this isn't just a war of interest. This isn't just a war for a specific region. This is a war for the heart and soul of the human race, et cetera, et cetera, while also, while talking about freedom, curtailing freedoms at home. Um, You have a lot of the first kind of big crackdowns on anti-war movements in the U.S. occurred during World War I. And, of course, in the Bush administration, we get the Patriot Act, and we also get the the kind of FBI notoriously entrapping oftentimes mentally deficient teenagers by dangling out uh, entrapment schemes to say, oh, if you want to do a terrorist plot, like here's where you go and here's how you do it, and then they show up at some kid's house and arrest them. Uh, these kinds of things, they mirror each other. Uh, so you could say it really entered the establishment with Wilson, but it didn't really last. But when Bush inserted it as part of the war on terror, it we never got rid of it. There was never really a, a counter reaction. Now, as we all know, Obama ran on hope and change. Obama adopted and in some cases expanded all of these policies. And we have never had a rollback from that. So we, we have, we, I guess you could say that we live in a type of a militarized security state democratism right now. Yeah, I, I think that sums up the uh, George W. Bush era in a nutshell, is uh, warrantless wiretapping, entrapping mentally ill people into jail sentences while preaching democracy uh, and using it for justification to uh, to go to war. Now, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people would have seen coming 
is the role of China on the international stage. Historically, since the Communist Revolution, the Chinese have largely kept to themselves. They haven't gotten involved in a lot of international conflicts. They like to be able to uh, do business with everybody and not really necessarily get involved in the nitty-gritty. Also, when it comes to countries that you would think would hold diplomacy in high value, uh, communist dictatorship autocracies probably aren't high on that list. And yet China has emerged as I would say maybe the world's leading diplomatic country at this point. What's going on with sort of China acting very U.S. like on the diplomatic stage? Why are they doing this? Why is China mediating conflicts between places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and offering to do so in Russia and Ukraine and who knows uh, wherever else? Why is China taking up this historically American role? Well, that's because China simply has much more capacity than it had before, first of all. Second of all, it's because China senses an opportunity, particularly to embarrass the United States. The U.S. is overextended, and the U.S. is constantly insisting that all of its partners and even potential partners who may not be official allies toe a very absolutist line on all these issues. And I'm not just talking war. I'm talking sanctions, too. The U.S. is addicted to sanctions. Sanctions have doubled mm. under every presidential administration for the, going back four presidencies now. They just keep expanding, expanding. And, of course, sanctions interfere not just with the U.S. and whoever they're targeting trade, but with many Many U.S. partners who the, the D.C. puts pressure on to prevent them from allowing a circumventation of sanctions. So this actually economically harms a lot of people, and it undermines U.S. financial power. The Chinese have a kind of sovereignty first, uh, non-ideological uh, more inclination. They will do business with anyone that <laughs> it doesn't threaten them to do business with. So they become a much more secure diplomatic partner in a lot of ways uh, as their capacity has grown. I would say at this point, they're all practically a peer competitor with the U.S. Uh, people see them as more diplomatically stable, less likely to curtail their international uh, trade options. And then the Chinese see the opportunity to just show that they're a big superpower now and show how they can they can walk into these places and perform i mean so far who knows we'll see the results but perform pretty well uh bringing together saudi arabia and iran is something that dc never would have been trusted to do particularly by iran but also by many other actors in the middle east because everyone knows where the u.s stands right and where because when, when, you, when you keep picking a side it's very difficult to get anybody to uh to pick you as their as their mediator hey we're going to have to end it there. Christopher, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we could do this in the future. Absolutely. Sure thing. Uh, if you want to read the article that we've been talking about, go to my Facebook page. It's up there right now, facebook.com slash Fan. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. 